I take it for granted how easy it is for me to capture moments with merely the press of a button on my iPhone. There are, in fact, 6,528 videos on my phone, along with over 128,000 photos, accounting for all manner of life's events. From the sublime, like Christmas mornings and my children's birthdays, music performances and sweet ceremonies, to the utterly ridiculous, including a video of the entire ride on It's a Small World, which ironically was captured on the day Disneyland announced it would be closing its gates for only the fourth time in history, marking the first official day of the pandemic lockdown in March of 2020. And it's hard to ignore the weird little reels sprinkled around my social media feed. <laughs> Heck, I'm not too proud to admit I have a smattering of videos of pretty latte art and angry surveillance of an unnamed squirrel nemesis that keeps gnawing at my patio furniture. All of it chronicles existence and convergence in the world. And each time I rewatch them, the meaningful moments, that is, not the squirrel, I see and realize something new about the time and place they were capturing. Today, we can't go one swipe of a finger without seeing a video. These flat little machines that we carry around in our pockets and purses are capable of documenting any and all aspects of our lives. So easily that it's hard to imagine a time when it wasn't as simple as point, shoot, and share. But is it accurate to assume that every human wielding a phone camera trying to capture life around them could be called an amateur cinematographer or filmmaker? Not necessarily. Access to technology that is capable of instantly creating a film may be greater than ever, but the term amateur filmmaker is far more nuanced and deserves a proper mantle in history. Do you sense the uh, history lesson coming on? The low-budget hobbyist art of making films for enjoyment, otherwise known as amateur filmmaking, has been exponentially growing since the advent of the first moving picture camera in the 1880s. Inventors around the world were inspired to expand the capability of photographs to exhibit the motion of real life with a stack of moving photographs. Historians largely agree that Scottish inventor William Kennedy Laurie Dixon, who was working for Thomas Edison at the time, invented the first movie camera. He designed and patented the kinetograph, which used an electric motor to rotate a sprocket wheel containing a film strip. After exposing a frame, the sprocket rotated to expose the next frame. The film strip could then be projected on a screen to show a series of images. Once the kinetograph was patented in 1891, it became the first functioning movie camera in a single case. And then the race to mass market cameras for the public was on. In Britain, during the early 1920s in particular, amateur cinematography gained a following among the wealthy after the launch of lightweight portable cine equipment by Kodak and Pate. As social access to the new hobby widened, enthusiasts began to use cine equipment at home at work, on holiday, and elsewhere. Some amateurs made films only for themselves, while others became members of cine clubs. Members participated in film competitions from local to international levels and wrote about how they made their films, what equipment they used, problems they encountered in filming, and how they resolved them in magazines devoted solely to the art and act of amateur filmmaking. Amateur filmmaking magazines were a valuable source of information about amateur films. 
Glaringly, the presence of women in film production was rarely, if ever, referred to by correspondents in those magazines. On occasion, Amateur Cineworld magazine would include short biographies of the filmmakers themselves, providing evidence of the involvement of women in amateur film production if they were working in collaborative partnerships with their husbands or within cineclubs. But when women worked collaboratively with men, it resulted in systematic problems in their work's attribution. When prize-winning films made by married couples or teams of a mix of male and female producers, it was automatically assumed that a man was the main filmmaker and a woman just an assistant. According to these publications, one would think that there was a disproportionate ratio of men to women participating in cine clubs, when ironically, the clubs actually attracted women in significant numbers, droves of young women, in fact. Erin Hill, author of Never Done, A History of Women's Work in Media Production, said that historically, women were the main workforce in photographic manufacturing before the advent of motion pictures. In photo finishing laboratories, photographic plate manufacturing, and drying, cutting, and retouching film. And they assumed similar work in the early motion picture industry. At the advent of home movie-making technology in the early 20th century, women were actively encouraged to take part. This was because it was seen as an extension of their roles as wives, mothers, and custodians of family keepsakes. But most women in cineclubs actually made films beyond documenting historical or familial records, dabbling in aesthetically inventive fiction films, revealing just how filmmaking could become a vehicle for unleashing women's creativity. In the flourishing British cineclub culture, women were key participants, and not merely as helpful companions or tea makers. For young women, cineclubs opened a door to adventures as hobbyist filmmakers and freedom resulting from the accessibility of amateurism. They were also granted the opportunity to engage with film production and burgeoning technology alongside other like-minded creatives. Today's episode reveals the incredible story of a film crafted by one particular group of spirited young female film enthusiasts. A story tucked away, seemingly lost to history, waiting to be discovered for over 90 years. Welcome to the Virtuosa Society podcast, where I'll be diving into remarkable secret and hidden in plain sight stories of collaborations that were born from various shared struggles between female creatives. We're going to unlock the memory banks of women to discover the experiences that resonate most with womanhood beyond the missing pages in history books, to the nuanced truths and realities and, and revelations that have unlocked true creativity in women, all in an effort to elevate the future for women carving out artistic, creative, nonlinear lives. I'm Katie Harmon, your host. I'm insatiably curious, a lifelong seeker and a storyteller, primarily through song as a professional performer for more than half of my life now. <laughs> I also happen to be a former Miss America and a women's healthcare advocate, both foundational experiences from which I built my collection of and deep respect for the stories of women by women and for women. Let's unlock today's story, shall we?
He has a bobbed brunette dressed as a chauffeur, or rather a self-titled chauffeuse in a tailored skirted jacket and chauffeur's cap. Sally, yes, yes, Sadie, yes, you. Go back around the chair and pick up the hat. She instructs through a megaphone. As a bead of sweat sits atop her brow, betraying her projecting voice to reveal just how nervous she actually is in that moment. Eight bright-eyed women between the ages of 20 and 30 stand before her, eagerly awaiting her instruction, while lightly fussing with their gauzy dresses as the October air teases with a wind and a nascent raindrop. This is the directorial debut of 26-year-old Frances Laskett. Having also written the script and conceptualized the entire production, she's poised to undertake something daring and unprecedented, an all-female silent comedy film titled Sally Sally's Fourth. Operating the camera at her side is her friend Ivy A. Lowe, who's also co-producing the film. Together, they are members of the newly formed London Amateur Cinematographers Association, the London ACA for short. The London ACA is one of many amateur filmmaking groups growing like wildfire in the Roaring Twenties, particularly sweeping across Britain's middle class after the Great War. And the 10 women of Sally Sally's Fourth, led by Fearless Francis, were among the first generation of innovators in the amateur film industry. In an article written for Amateur Films Magazine upon the film's debut in December 1928, she began with a statement, it might be thought that I was overambitious and a bit of an optimist when I made up my mind to produce a film when I had no experience of either direction or cinematography. Well, I admit I was. <laughs> but as ambition and optimism are the stimulants for success, I took a good dose and produced an all-ladies film. This sounds simple enough, but it wasn't. <laughs> The plot of Francis's comedy script centers around Sally, a young woman who is dragooned into becoming the maid for an afternoon garden tea party. I am bursting at the seams to share more of Francis's firsthand account of making the film, but before that, to truly set the scene, pun intended, for the nuances of this groundbreaking experience, and quite frankly, for the sheer joy of serving as your narrator, <laughs> I think I'd better describe the film in detail first. Now, just imagine yourself seated on a folding chair at the December meeting of the London ACA in 1928, with a projector whirling beside you and a screen hanging in front of you. As this is a silent film, the only other sounds you hear are the whispers and chuckles of your fellow members seated on either side. You've already seen three other films, by the way, but you are keyed up to see this next one. The 16mm nitrocellulose film sputters out a title image created on black paper, handwritten in white paint by the director herself. It reads, Sally Sally's Fourth. The letters framed within a simple drawing of a clothesline filled with various articles of clothing. Cut to a string of seven more handwritten titles with an all-star cast produced by Francis Laskett and Ivy A. Lowe. Directed by Francis Laskett. Photography by Ivy A. Lowe. Scenario by Francis Laskett. Edited by Ivy A. Lowe. And lastly, an introduction. Mrs. Bloggs did everyone else's washing but had no time for her own. We find Mrs. Bloggs, played by Nan Kearns, retrieving an article of clothing from a basket, setting it down on a wooden table and pressing it with an iron. 
She brushes hair from her forehead in frustration and exhaustion. A clothesline filled with bloomers, sheets, and the like hangs behind her. In saunters Sally, who throws a bag of laundry into a basket and plops down into a chair, exclaiming, Mum, I'm fed up. Apologies for my terrible Cockney accent, everyone. Professor Henry Higgins would cringe in despair upon hearing it, I'm sure. <laughs> Sally is dressed in a long wool coat, black cap, and buckled Mary Jane heels. She tries to prop her feet up on her mother's ironing table, only to be swatted by her mother's hands. She stands, removes her hat, places it on the chair she was just sitting on, and turns to a mirror behind her. After retrieving a powder puff cleverly concealed in a front pocket, she begins powdering her nose, looking rather bored, actually. Mrs. Blog stuffs a bag with laundry and hands it to Sally. Here, stop that. There's washing to be took. Sally safely stows the puff, grabs the bag, puts her hat back on, and sets forth along a street lined with iron fencing and tall, manicured shrubbery. As she reaches the gate, a black motor car turns into the driveway just in front of her. Sally attempts to enter behind the car, but the gate swings closed, so she runs to a clearing between the shrubbery along the fence to catch a glimpse of who might be exiting the car. The scene shifts and we see the chauffeurs stop the car, exit, and then open the door for a passenger. It is none other than the affluent Mrs. Bond Regent, played by Margaret Leslie, who had been shopping for her niece's garden party. She motions to the chauffeurs to retrieve her packages from the car. The pair are met at the doorstep by Mrs. Bond Regent's frantic niece, who proclaims, The maid's gone! What are we going to do? The trio turns to see Sally watching them rather conspicuously. Mrs. Bond Regent exclaims, here's our hope, and dashes over to where Sally is standing by the fence. She asks, our maid has left us. Will you take her place for today? And without waiting for a reply, opens the gate and pulls Sally along toward the others. The chauffeurs eyes her with disdain while the niece opens the door for them to all move inside. Sally protests, I must deliver my washing. And in a rather odd turn of editing, we find Sally and Mrs. Bond Regent back on the doorstep and Sally turns to go with her laundry bag in hand. Upon her return, after supposedly dropping off the laundry wherever it was supposed to go, Sally struts past the chauffeur's who is bent over the bonnet of the car attempting a repair. Hilariously, we see a peak of white frilly bloomers as the chauffeuse's coat lifts. Sally can't resist the urge to kick the snobby chauffeuse in the tush and then dash off toward the front door. We find Sally inside the manse in the clutches of Mrs. Bond Regent, who is attempting to fit her with an apron for the party. She removes Sally's coat and tries to hand her a new dress, but Sally shoves it away, proclaiming, I ain't gonna take nothing off. As Sally tries to wriggle away from the clutches of Mrs. Bond Regent, as she's trying to tie the apron strings, the niece appears saying, quick, they're coming. Ringing the doorbell stands Miss C.H. Elsie, played by Sylvia Cole, who suspiciously resembles the niece, but no matter. She wears a floppy gavroche cardigan and tie and clutches a sketchbook beneath one arm. Sally greets her and leads her to the garden where they are met by the aunt and her niece, which might actually be the director herself disguised as the niece, while the original niece is now Miss Elsie? Try and keep up, eh? Miss Elsie, auntie, has an artistic eye and can tell a model a mile off the niece purrs. 
clumsily. Sally turns to leave and knocks into a table, chortling. I ain't meant to be a maid, mum. Gosh, I sound like Jennifer Coolidge. (laughs) Miss Elsie suddenly springs to her feet towards Sally. You would make a wonderful model and steps back to begin sketching her. A little animated graphic appears to signify the ringing of the doorbell and Sally dashes away to answer the door, tripping on the stairs as she hurries. Up the lined path to the front steps saunters Angela Scales, played by Iris Campbell. Angela is holding a golden lyre and seems to be wistfully singing a little ditty when Sally answers the door. Sally seems to cover her mouth in shock. Or was she stifling laughter? I couldn't tell. And then scratches her head as she leads Angela to the garden. As Angela glides gracefully toward the party, Sally mischievously tries to mimic her stride behind her until Angela turns to give her a haughty glance. This is Angela, auntie. She's a lyrist and a great singer, says the niece. They greet one another and Angela lets out a long sigh. The next title lets us in on the secret behind her disposition, reading, Angela Scales loved her lyre. Nothing else on earth seemed worthwhile. While eavesdropping, Sally suddenly falls over a chair and screams in surprise. As Mrs. Bond Regent admonishes her, she cries out once again, I ain't meant to be a maid, mum. We are then privy to a series of terrific close-up shots of Sally's facial expressions as she cries into her apron. Angela exclaims, what a wonderful voice. With training, it would lift the roof off the Albert Hall. And with that, Sally runs off toward the ring of the doorbell once again. We then find Flossie Footlight, delightfully portrayed by Nora File, on the front steps artfully retrieving a handkerchief from beneath her stocking garter as Sally opens the door in shock. Flossie hands Sally her calling card and then slinks toward the garden party as the title proclaims, Flossie Footlight arrived in true theatrical style. A gust of wind suddenly blows through the party, so the guests firmly plant themselves into their lounge chairs. Sally is standing next to Flossie's chair and gawks at Flossie's gams as she sexily sits. Distracted, Sally trips over Flossie's foot, tumbling to the ground again. She protests for a third time. Uh, I, I ain't meant to be a maid. I ain't, mom. She's helped to her feet by Mrs. Bond Regent and the niece. It's no good, mum. I wasn't ever meant to be a maid. I'm going home. As she steps forward to leave, Flossie puts her hand on one shoulder and coos, that was a beautiful fall. You should go on the stage. Then my favorite title reads, The Doorbell Wonders If Sally Is Deaf, (laughs) implying that she must scurry to open the door for yet another party guest. After she dashes away, we see the current party guest relaxing in a wider shot of the garden chatting away and even being greeted by a sweet dog who rushes to their feet. It's a lovely little scene. Sally opens the door to see a simply attired Primrose Spring, played by the ironically named Fancy Larkins. (laughs) She's tapping her sensible buckled shoes in wait. Sally looks her up and down and starts to close the door, thinking Primrose must be in the wrong place. But Primrose pushes the door open and sensibly lets herself in. We are then told Primrose Spring was a simple maiden with a simple nature, and she is introduced to the other ladies. 
Like clockwork, Sally falls over while attempting to eavesdrop. And Primrose replies, Never wear high heels, my dear. They always let you down. A brilliant bit of writing by Francis, by the way. Sally limps away to answer the door for one last guest. Claudia Woodby Manish, played by Hilda Rogers, strolls up to the door in a man's Fair Isle sweater atop an Oxford shirt and tie, with a beret mostly hiding her bobbed hair. She rings the doorbell and then retrieves a cigarette from a gold case and lights it up. Sally opens the door and asks, What name, sir? When Claudia hands Sally her calling card, she exclaims, Oh! After being introduced to the others, another title chimes in with, There was nothing feminine about Claudia Woodby Manish. As we watch her shake hands confidently with the other ladies, Claudia sits and pulls out her cigarette case only to discover it empty. Unfazed, she nonchalantly pulls out a pipe and lights it, puffing away as the niece looks on in fascination. A new title reads, Music, Dancing, The Simple Life League, The Decline of Femininity, and The Stage were all subjects for busy tongues. And we watch as the camera pans around the various personalities on display. Someone calls out, Sally, bring the tea! And Sally unsteadily retrieves the tea service. As she fumbles with a tea, Claudia yells out, tea, beer for me, please. The group looks on in amazement as Claudia guzzles a beer and Primrose in reply requests, pure water for me. Now that the ladies have been appropriately plied with beverages, Sally attempts to clean up, but accidentally drops and breaks a teacup and saucer. Suddenly, the group conspires and the title says, well, Prove your theories on Sally in an attempt to convince her that she has talent beyond her blunderings. They gather around her. She is first told to pose statuesquely. Now, just keep quite still as Elsie attempts to draw her. When Sally continually falls, imagine that, and sticks out her tongue in defiance, Elsie replies, you're hopeless. Angela then persuades her to sing along to her lyre, strumming. When Sally erupts into sound and dramatic flailing of arms, the group covers their ears and walks away in pain. Flossie then shows her a little Charleston step atop a table, exclaiming, I will teach her to dance. But when Sally promptly falls on her keister and squashes Flossie's foot again, little animated symbols appear on the screen, denoting, well, you know, <laughs> expletives on screen are a no-no in the 20s after all. Sally rubs her sore rump as Mrs. Bond Regent and Primrose attempt to wipe her tears away. Primrose suggests that she can, in fact, teach her a more proper way to dance. But Sally accidentally walks over Primrose's hat while attempting to be more graceful. Claudia then claims, oh, I'll cure you, and shoves a pipe in Sally's face. At first, Sally protests, but then proclaims, not bad. After a few hearty puffs, she begins to feel ill and clutches her stomach. She runs as fast as she can from the party, with the various personalities attempting to catch her, but then giving up after acknowledging that it's time to depart the party anyway. They say goodbye to the niece. Goodbye, dear Trixie, parting with cheek kisses, handshakes, and waves. Mrs. Bond Regent calls after Sally, but then flaps her wrists in exasperation, relieved to be rid of the clumsy girl. Sally, still wearing her apron, runs down the street and is nearly hit by the chauffeuse on her way back to the manse. Head in hand, she yells out, Oh, Lord, there's another of them, and runs off. The chauffeuse, 
no longer the niece, by the way, shakes her fist at Sally and then steps out of the car. As she watches Sally run away, she throws her head back in laughter. We cut back to Sally's mom still slaving over the washing, but this time with a stubby stogie between her lips. Seeing Sally in a state of disarray, she throws the stogie on the ground and puts her hands on her hips disapprovingly. Sally sits and recounts the ordeal while mother looks on in disbelief. Sally stands and throws her arms around her mother while her mother reassuringly pats her back. A title then reads, Home Sweet Home for Me After All, and then cuts to a close-up of Sally and her mother hugging and smiling. Until Sally suddenly covers her mouth and runs out of frame, seemingly still sick from the pipe. Mother puts her hands on her hips again. Finney reads the final title. So witty and bright, right? (laughs) It thrills me more than I can say that this film was saved from obscurity in 2015 when the University of East Anglia in Norwich, England undertook an extensive enterprise to find and preserve amateur films made by cine clubs throughout the East of England region that had long been discarded. Thus, the East Anglian Film Archive was born. And on International Women's Day in 2016, the EAFA revealed that they had found more than 150 rare and unseen films from over six decades of women amateur filmmakers. Their rich collection offers an unprecedented view of the interests and approaches of women filmmakers between 1928 and 1988. The films reveal a striking range of themes and topics, from depictions of life in Britain and abroad to unique observations about the social and cultural changes taking place around them. While many of the films won awards within various cine clubs, they hadn't previously been seen by a general audience. Between 2016 and 2019, Dr. Keith Johnston and Dr. Sarah Hill, professors of film and television studies at the University of East Anglia and directors of the East Anglian Film Archive at UEA, arranged a series of public screenings of selected amateur films by women from the EAFA's collection across the UK. In 2018, they successfully secured funding to commission acclaimed film composer Laura Rossi to produce new musical scores for three of the films, including Sally Sally's Fourth and The Polite Burglar, produced by the Sally herself, Sadie Andrews. More on that in a bit, by the way. These new scores were performed at live screenings in 2019 and then recorded and synchronized to the films to create new master copies. In 2019, EAFA worked with Talking Pictures TV, the UK's leading archive TV channel, to select and license some of the best films from the collection, including the three silent films with new scores, as well as other notable selections. To date, 10 films have been screened multiple times on TPTV, which is now achieving audience figures of over 6 million per week allowing the project to reach a much wider audience. This surge in interest led Film Archives UK to commission the team to conduct a wider mapping of women filmmakers' work held in regional and national film archives. The findings of this audit were interpreted and published in March 2020 by Drs. Johnston and Hill, alongside their colleague, Dr. Stephanie Clayton, in 
Invisible Innovators, Making Women Filmmakers Visible Across the UK Film Archives. This analysis of catalog records from across UK-based film and media archives offers a fuller account of women filmmakers, creating an expanded data set of over 2,250 films and 158 women filmmakers. Dr. Johnston noted the following critical statement in the report. While women have previously been largely overlooked within amateur filmmaking, this collection demonstrates that women have made a significant contribution to amateur film production. This fascinating collection brings their work to the forefront, providing exposure to films that were previously hidden. I am delighted that audiences can now see these films for the first time and give these talented filmmakers some well-deserved attention. This report was in fact my introduction to the story of Sally Sally's Forth, as my dig for the stories of collaborations between female creatives led me to the EAFA's website. And I just had to learn more, especially about the lives of the women who made the film and the impetus behind their collaboration. So imagine my surprise and delight when I messaged the Women in Focus Amateur Filmmakers in Britain Facebook group to ask about Frances Laskett and received a generous reply directly from Dr. Johnston himself. Dr. Johnston and the staff at the EAFA have been an invaluable source of help in my quest to leave no stone unturned in learning as much as possible about Frances, Ivy, Sadie, Nan, Margaret, Sylvia, Iris, Nora, Fancy, and Hilda. In our correspondence, Dr. Johnston stated that, quote, there's not much known about them, and finding even the smallest of details is time-consuming. Their story remains frustratingly incomplete. Up until the 2019 public screening of the newly digitized and scored Sally Sally's Fourth, it had only ever been seen by the members of the London ACA at that December 1928 meeting. Therefore, for over 90 years, the story behind the making of the film, along with more information about the lives of the 10 women who made it, had been all but lost to history. And still, too much of the story surrounding Sally Sally's Fourth remains shrouded in mystery. The making of this episode was the closest I've yet come to a real-life treasure-hunting expedition, the likes of Indiana Jones, following clue after clue only to find yet another clue along the paper trail. But what I did find is illuminating and merely electrifies my curiosity. Although the opening credits of Sally Sally's Fourth touts an all-star cast, no one actually received payment, and each of the young women were quite inexperienced, with the exception of Frances, who had already acted in a few London ACA productions. Indeed, it was truly a collaboration between a group of creative mutual friends who were simply fascinated by films, filmmaking, acting, and directing. A 1928 Westminster Gazette article actually referred to the cast and crew as, quote, London business girls, and specifically referred to Francis as a, quote, city secretary. It is highly likely that the ladies were influenced to join the London ACA as a result of its pioneering efforts to expand knowledge about filmmaking, which was attractive for ambitious, innovative, and artistic youth following the Great War. 
As the first Senate club in the Capitol, the culture of the London ACA seemed to encourage individuals, irrespective of gender, to develop skills and an understanding of all aspects of film production. And therefore, opportunities opened to women in the production environment. Women were not restricted in any formal way from participating in the club's activities, including film production. The London ACA's template for an intellectual engagement with film culture was replicated in other cineclubs, even long after the success of those clubs had surpassed the London ACA standing. From all accounts, Frances was a devoted champion of the London ACA and was wholly inspired to put her acquired skills to practice. Earlier in the episode, I mentioned an article penned by Frances for Amateur Film Magazine's December 1928 issue. Her article was titled, My Very First Film. And upon reading it, thanks to a scan of the original magazine sent to me by Dr. Johnston, I had such a visceral reaction. The ambitious creative spirit of a brilliant 26-year-old and her ardent intention for the film leapt off the page, seemingly dimensionally. Her account was both heartfelt and hilarious. I couldn't help but recall my own experiences directing high school and community theatrical productions with a chuckle and a shudder. Her article was a mirror, an ageless reflection of a determined, creative young woman. I personally find the article to be a treasure map filled with delightful clues about the director herself, her co-producer Ivy A. Lowe, and her cast at large. Invaluable glimpses beyond the cold facts contained in the shockingly limited birth, death, and census records, or brief highlights in a few publications. And it deserves to be shared in full, rather than synopsized or merely compactly quoted, as you can't get much closer to the truth than something written by Frances herself. Following her dazzling opening statement about ambition and optimism being stimulants for success, she went on to say even more disarmingly inspiring things. Quote, I decided that interference by any of the male species should be absolutely none, with the exception of one unrehearsed incident whilst I was directing. Namely, when a dog known as Robert walked on the set and was shot, I carried out this policy to the letter. I wrote the story and put only female characters in it. As there was neither hero nor heroine in it, I was somewhat limited. Each character had a definite bearing, however, on the story and a definite part to play, thus ensuring, from a tactical point of view, harmonious relations between the members of the cast. I chose my cast carefully and was fairly successful in finding the desired types. So with high hopes and a top-hole camera woman, I started in on the job of directing. Being a woman, I thought I knew how to handle the species. I had marked, learned, and inwardly digested the various methods of procedure in the ACA and on location. I got my megaphone. I noticed that no self-respecting producer ever went without one. Then my troubles began. Ambition was still growing in my breast, but optimism began to fade slightly when my ignorance became apparent. I almost wept. The heavens must have been in sympathy, or was it protest? For they wept too, and trebled my trials and tribulations. I glanced at my camera woman. She looked so capable and businesslike by her faithful victor that I suddenly felt ashamed. I saw myself through a mental reducing glass. I shook myself up. 
I, I looked at the faithful Victor on whose loyal service depended the success of our venture. Hope rose once more within me. With a wonder machine like that and a perfect witch of an operator, great things could be accomplished. I took a deep breath and worked hard. Literally, with the sweat of my brow, a raucous voice, and my trusty megaphone. As the thing began to grow before my eyes, I became a little more ambitious. I thought I would draw my own titles. I'd never done this before either. But there has to be a first time in all things. And so the titles were produced by the same fist that wielded the megaphone. I may say here that I got so enthusiastic with the white paint and the black paper that it wasn't until I found myself unable to tell black from white that I relinquished my fascinating task. <laughs> the good Victor's mistress knew how to juggle with words as well as with stops and lenses and things. Thus came the titles into being. There was also a very sunny side to this directing business. My cast were as keen as myself on the venture, and if any merit is at all visible in the result of my efforts, a great deal of it is due to their ready assistance in every way, particularly in punctuality. They endured October chilliness in thin summer garments with Spartan stoicism. They didn't mind getting wet, and they didn't mind spoiling their clothes when they had to fall. My camera woman worked very hard, too. She talked a lot about splicing and cutting and editing, and as I watched her nimble fingers at work on the job, my respect and admiration for her grew with each piece of film that was ruthlessly cut and thrown to the ground. The shooting was done in two weekends. The difficulties I had to contend with were legion, but I have learned a lot by this actual experience, and I hope someday, when the exchequer allows, to repeat the experiment. Oh the aspiration and promise contained in her words. One wishes beyond hope that Frances was indeed able to fulfill her desire to repeat the process over and over again. And while there is mention of Frances acting in other London ACA productions, there are no listing of productions after Sally Sally's Fourth. And sadly, we may never know what potential lay in wait for young Frances Laskett. After confirming Francis's year of birth, 1902, with Dr. Johnston, I came across a record that hadn't previously been uncovered by the EAFA, a Commonwealth War Grave Certificate from a mass casualty site in the Williston residential area of London. It appears that Francis died on October 21st, 1940, at the tender age of 38, the victim of enemy bombing during World War II. Many of the civilian dead of wartime Williston had been left forgotten in unmarked graves. Williston was a prime target for bombers during the Second World War because of its heavy concentration of industry and transport corridors. At one point, a higher tonnage of explosives was being dropped on Williston than on the east end of London. A new memorial erected in 2009 lists all 230 people buried in Williston New Cemetery who died in the Second World War air raids. The ages of those listed have now been included, which makes the memorial even more poignant and meaningful, and making it easier for families and historians to trace those previously marked as missing, including talented, ambitious, intelligent, capable, and thoughtful. Francis Laskett. The paper trail for Ivy, Nan, Margaret, Sylvia, Iris, Fancy, and Hilda 
is startlingly blank. From Francis's article, we have only one interesting clue to Ivy's story, that she was well adept at running a Victor camera. The Victor 16mm camera and projector was first introduced in 1923, a competitor of the first fully encased 16mm camera system by Kodak. The Victor was a hand-cranked rectangular aluminum box. Original models were made and sold in very small numbers, from 20 units to usually no more than a couple of thousand units. If only we knew just how Ivy was able to acquire one of those first models of the Victor. The gumshoe in me wants to know what her previous film experience was and how she was introduced to camera operation, or if Sally Sally's Fourth was her first film and she learned on the fly, as was the accepted standard of early amateur cineclub films. The EAFA was able to find an interesting clue about that in the credits of another film by an alumni of Sally Sally's Fourth. A Mr. T. Lowe is listed as a camera operator on a film directed by Sadie Andrews, with Ivy listed as the art director of the film. As Ivy was one of two only married members of Sally Sally's Fourth, could she have been married to Mr. T. Lowe? And did they possibly share the Victor camera? Maybe Ivy taught Mr. Lowe how to use it. I like to imagine that scenario. But... It is also possible that she may have been married to Mr. A.E. Lowe, who was the executive director of the London ACA. In 1928, he visited the U.S. to show a film to the Amateur Cinema League. So there is a chance that Ivy may have accompanied him on that trip. Quite an interesting coincidence, right? Only slightly more is known about plucky Sadie Andrews, the star of Sally Sally's Fourth. The EAFA believes she was born in 1906 in South Africa, although her birth was registered in New Haven, Sussex. This would make her around 22 years old when she appeared in her first film as the lead in Sally Sally's Fourth. Shortly thereafter, she followed in Francis's footsteps as the writer-director-producer of The Polite Burglar, a comedy film full of intentional continuity editing, script, and direction errors. It was specifically produced for a meeting of the London ACA in March 1929 and was the basis of a competition. The club's members were invited to record the mistakes incorporated into the film. A report in Amateur Film Magazine notes that the competition was won by none other than Sadie's castmate, Nora File, who correctly identified 30 mistakes. Nora had a keen eye. Interestingly, Sadie also seems to have been part of a breakaway group from the London ACA, the London Amateur Film Club, where she served as honorary secretary in 1931 to 1932. There she made her next film, Man Disposes, which now appears to be lost. And she possibly collaborated on two other films. But details about how else her life or her filmmaking career may have developed are still unknown. Nora File is the only other member of the Sally Sally's Fourth Troupe with a bit more recorded history in filmmaking. But again, not much more. The first mention of her in press reports is in January 1928 as a, quote, pretty young married woman of Hampstead, a blonde with gray eyes, was born in Corfu, has spent most of her life in Cairo. She has a son, aged three. In the article, it was also mentioned that she had taken part in a competition to act out a marriage proposal, which she described as her first time in front of the camera. She also said that she was saving up for her own cine camera. 
Nora joined the London ACA in 1928, acting in two films straight away, 49 by George Sewell, followed directly by Sally Sally's Fourth, portraying the eye-catching Flossie Footlight. She made her own film titled Afterwards in 1930, but infuriatingly, some reports credit it to Mr. Terence Greenridge, who was a stalwart of the amateur scene, having been part of the prestigious Oxford Film Production Group, as well as a fellow member of the London ACA. While he did help as a scenarist, location scout, and guide regarding camera angles, it can be confirmed that she came up with the idea, directed, and acted in the film. In a bit of a plot twist, records show that she thereafter married Terence Greenridge, but there is no mention of her previous husband, a divorce, or her son. They've all but vanished. Sadly, so did any further evidence of what transpired from 1930 on. More telling than the tiny paper trail on the 10 remarkable women behind the gynocentric tour de farce Sally Sally's Forth is that the film is one of too many achievements by women with a distinct viewpoint and unique angle of the portrayal of women that has been buried. Forgotten on a reel, hidden in a closet. Even though it is timelessly entertaining and evident of the imperative existence of women who sought to create together for the good of an art form they enjoyed and for the good of showcasing how they wanted women to appear on screen and off. Women's voices matter, as do their stories. Their sheer existence matters. And the women of Sally Sally's Fourth deserve the recognition they're finally receiving. Just as Sally was encouraged to try on various creative pursuits, I encourage us all to do the same, as well as see the greatness in each other. My dear friend, Elizabeth Grayson, truly leads by example in doing just that. Founder of the nonprofit Flapper House, Inc., Elizabeth is a filmmaker, writer, and actress with a mission to create educational, informational, inspirational content and support creatives across all mediums. She is the owner of Flapper Films, Flapper Press, and the creator of the ongoing documentary film archival project and support platform, the Gen Z Collective. It was a thrill to sit with Lizzie recently and talk about her path to filmmaking and the impactful chance encounter that changed the course of her career. Take a listen. As a filmmaker, I mean, I didn't start, I didn't come up with that concept of that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life until I was mid forties. I, uh, when, when my, when my kid was like in those early days of uh, half days, you know, kindergarten type of thing. I, I had a kid when I was 44, so it was all a late type of thing. And so those first free two or three hours you have in the morning before you go pick them up midday, I would walk this beautiful park near the school. And I really, I mean, I literally spent all my time uh, walking, meditating, reading, contemplating, you know, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Because I've been an actor for many, 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 many years. Mm, oh yeah. And, but I, I really didn't have the, um, 
you have to have a great amount of drive out in Hollywood and ambition. And that sort of faded away with time. I was one of those actors who I really lucked out and I was on this series. It was a franchise series at the time. I mean, I have no idea what it would be like if it had been released at this time in history when we have so many streaming platforms. But back then, Highlander, the series, you either knew of it or you didn't because it would like showed up at weird times on different, you know, different parts of the United States. Mm -hmm. So, but I worked on that uh, show for about six years and we shot half of the year in Canada, half of the year in Paris and around Paris. And um, and then I did the the spinoff that was Highlander the Raven. And it was just like the best job I've ever had in my whole life type of thing as an actor, as a person. It was just great locations, amazing cast, amazing crew, amazing scripts, amazing character, where I got to, I played a, you know, a thousand year old immortal who was a sword fighter and, you know, we got to wear costumes and wigs. I mean, it was fabulous. It was just the epitome of what you would have fun doing as an actor. So, I mean, it's, this sounds really sad, but it was kind of downhill after that because it was just so much fun. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm great friends with those people still to this day. And um, I don't know. So what, when, when I got pregnant and um, had a kid, I was like, all right, do I really want to slog it out and do the whole acting thing in Hollywood? And I, I really just spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I thought, no, nope, I'm going to be a filmmaker. And um, wow. I, I entered a women directors competition uh, at the AFI uh, and I didn't get into the program, but um, it really started me on the journey because you had to have so many different components to even apply. You had to have a script. You had to have something that you could show as an example of your work. You had to have, you know, a mission statement, all of these things that created a focus for me. And what was so serendipitous at the time was that uh, literally within two months of making that decision, I went to a, a free dance event at an arts library nearby with my little toddler at that time, and sort of chasing her around this art gallery and trying to keep her still for this this dance performance. And it was a company called the Lineage Dance Company, and I didn't know anything about them. But the piece was called The Brain in Motion. And it was, I just never had seen anything like it. And it was different stories that dealt with different aspects of how the brain works. And I really, yeah, it was great. And I really had no idea what I was watching, but it was just fascinating. And there was one section that was about about a true story of a ballerina in New Orleans who had a stroke at a young age. And it was sort of her uh, dealing, you know, her her dancing and the stroke and it was all happened within a very short amount of time within this bigger program. But I, I don't know, I just, I approached, I sent an email to the um, choreographer and just said, hi, I'm this person. I I think I met her briefly at the event, but I said, I I have to do this. I have to write a script for a a short film for this program. And could I take that story and make it into a film? Could I write a script about it? And she said, sure. And then within a couple of weeks, I said, actually, I need to make a film to even submit. Could I film you just doing a dance to see if I can do it? She's like, sure. So um, that's the way it started. So we we created it with the help of another female collaborator to shoot it, Kathleen Kinmont, who's a very talented actor and filmmaker. Um, we shot Hillary doing this dance and it became a film called In Between. 
And that was my film. And then I wrote a script called The Perfection of Anna. And it featured, so in the end, I didn't get into the program, but I said, you know what, I'm just going to make this film. I'm going to see if I can do it. You know, really, it was all, yeah. all those early days were about, you know, can I do this? And, you know, do I have the everything it takes? So Absolutely. we did it. I mean, shoestring, you talking about shoestring, shoestring budget, a lot of, I mean, it engaged, um, I had to cast a young girl as, as um, the, the main character. I enlisted the dance company, enlisted the space. I mean, I got everything for free and uh, created this film that I'm very, very proud of. And it played the film festival circuit. Yeah. So, but that began my relationship with Hillary Thomas. And so I've thought about it a lot today when I was walking my dog, I was like, you know, I wouldn't be a filmmaker if it weren't for that meeting with Hillary Thomas and then meeting the lineage dance company, because then she started inviting me, like, could you do this part in our live show? Could you, Mm -hmm. you know, it became this, um, real, we were so simpatico in terms of the way we approach, we're both full of ideas, kind of like makes everyone around us crazy because we have so many ideas, but <laughs> we work really fast and we're, you know, it's just like, we're like little tornadoes and, but we found each other. And so I started acting in her live performances and then I started adapting their live performances into film. So my relationship with lineage and Hillary advanced me as a filmmaker because I just had to keep learning different thing aspects of filmmaking and to the point now where like a couple of years ago I learned to edit film so you know I became even more self-sufficient I mean there are a lot of people yes. you know even though I'm a control freak and and try to have my finger in everything in terms of the project um it's so collaborative I mean with men and women but um I was thinking about it today it's like the majority of the people I collaborate uh with our women. And mm-hmm. I'm so grateful for that. I mean, the two last productions I performed in as a, an actor, I played Hillary's 85 year old mother. That's and then right. we just finished this uh, show called after row that's in yes. partnership with Planned Parenthood. But both of those productions were all women cast crew, writers, musicians, dancers, all women. And it's just, amazing to me that this space lineage the lineage performing arts center is like this creative portal and i mean there's male and female i mean there's just all sorts of people who go there but um it's just so rich with female collaboration and it's it's a space we give each other space to make mistakes and it feels like a place where you can go and not be afraid of being creative because that's, you know, we're always afraid of when we perform of failing or mistakes, but I mean, it is a a little bit of a breather there and I'm so grateful for that. And it's helped me as a filmmaker. I mean, for instance, this last production they did, um, it's called a matter of time. And the idea is that every room in the lineage performing arts center is a different era in time. So, um, the show, I saw the show recently, it was massive just in terms of content, but, um, I, she said, would you be part of it? She First of all, she wanted me to play Mr. Rogers. And I said, sure, I'll try that because he's kind of was alive through all these eras. So I thought, yeah, I could, that'd be very interesting you know, to try to do it. It was a big challenge. And then I said, you know what? My, my kid's in the middle of club volleyball and I yeah. it's senior year and mm. I just can't commit to another, I, I just can't do it. She said, okay, well then there's this article, this uh, 1958 or 59 McCall's Magazine article called 139 Ways 
uh, to get a husband, something like that. It was a real article made by a panel of people, mainly men and some women who look sort of like a cross between Betty Crocker and Ann Sexton, you know, like these odd, you see this picture and you're like, who are those people? But they created these, these points on how to get a man. And so when she told me about it, and I think I'd seen that article, it was trending at one point. And, uh, as soon as she told me about could, could you make a film that we project on the wall? And I, as soon as she told me about it, I just, I saw it in my head. And I thought, I, I can do that. I can do that by myself. I don't need anybody to help me. You know, and so I wrote the script. I bought a, a Rizzo wig and went to the thrift store and found a shirt and set up my setup like I do for uh, online auditions and made this film. And it was like, so I went to the show and there it was projected on this giant thing in the fifties room. It was hysterical. So wow. the, the collaboration just keeps on going and it keeps morphing, but it keeps advancing me in terms of skill in, in filmmaking. That makes sense. It's a that very long incredible. answer, but there you go. <laughs> no. Oh, I love yeah. it. I knew of the shows yeah. that you have been doing in recent years, I knew about after Roe, I knew about when you were playing, portraying her mother. Um, you and I had talked about mm-hmm. that, but I had no idea the yeah. story behind <laughs> the beginning of that collaboration. And it, it, that is so telling to yeah. the colla- the collaborative experience in general, but also the creative process, right? Mm-hmm. Is that you cannot plan for when the creative process is going to strike and how it's going to morph. Mm -hmm. You can be Mm -hmm. ready and willing and able using your tool bag of whatever you have developed over the years. So for you as an actor, for you in the entertainment industry, Mm -hmm. you knew the entire process. And Mm -hmm. so you were ready when the opportunity arose, I think that that is the, that's the secret sauce <laughs> is, I, I think, and I th- a lot of it is like, you think that, but I would love to hear your thought on that because it's, it's so hard to nail down for those who are wanting to understand the creative process and how to become fulfilled in, in creative pursuit, right? How to nail that down. Mm-hmm. And we cannot come up with 136 ways for how to be creatively successful. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's probably a book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Written by men. I but- mean, I, I mean, don't you think as a, I mean, you and I are simpatico in terms of um, we're very, very curious people. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think that that's part of it. And if you're an artist and you need to express something, I mean, I don't think you can manufacture any of that. I think it's, no. I don't know. I mean, I, tapping into a creative muse and trying to listen to what, what it is. I, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not quite sure. Cause not everybody feels that way. I mean, I, I'm, I mean, I literally make people crazy because I have so many ideas and so many things that I, I'll say out loud. I've, I've started just writing everything down. I've just started writing it down and not bothering people with it because it's just too overwhelming for them and overwhelming for me sometimes. But, um, 
it's just, I mean, all the arts are, I mean, I'm a, a painter and a mosaic artist. That's sort of what I thought I was going to do. And a photographer, that's kind of how I trained as acting and photography, but they're all connected. And if you have a need to express something and maybe it's simply just trying to figure out yes. your own life. I mean, I never thought I'd be making anything documentary based, but I mean, like with lineage, I, they have a wonderful, um, it's in conjunction with the Mark Morris Dance Company in New York, in Brooklyn, uh, dancing through Parkinson's. So Lineage has a program called Dance for Joy. And because with uh, Parkinson's, um, you know, you may not be able to walk across the room, but you could probably dance across the room. And they've, right. they've figured out all of these different techniques to help people with neurological issues uh, through movement. And now they have voice um, singing classes. They have drama classes. Oh, and uh, so I made a documentary film about their, their program, which is a smaller program, which has now grown much larger. Um, but, but documentary is like, I never really thought I would do that mm-hmm. because I was more interested in narrative and more the free, you know, I like that mm-hmm. aspect of it because documentary filmmaking is like making a giant puzzle all the time. And maybe that's the mosaic part of my head that likes to make mosaics. Oh, wow. But, yes. But it's all connected. That's, that's what I'm trying to say is that it's all somehow connected with having to express something. I don't know what it is exactly, exactly, but it's just, I feel like everybody needs help. Everybody needs help. So my goal as a filmmaker is to create educational, informational, inspirational content. And it, because I just feel like simple stories, if they're true, if it's a documentary or a narrative, if it's true, then it will hopefully help somebody, inform somebody. I don't know. I feel like it's, I'm in a giving back part of my life. I don't really, I'm not aspiring to make giant commercial film. I just don't have that in me anymore. I don't, I mean, it'd be great if something like that happened, but I, I don't pursue that anymore. I pursue the art of it, I suppose. And that's what, if I wish I'd figured that out earlier, I think I would have been happier through the majority of my life. Heaps and heaps of gratitude for my friend Elizabeth Grayson and for her beautifully honest conversation about filmmaking and artistry. I heartily encourage you to pop over to flapperpress.com for even more inspiration curated by Lizzie and her team. And I want to thank you for joining me on today's episode. If you're intrigued by what you've heard, I would genuinely love for you to subscribe and share as well as rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. My deepest thanks to Keith Johnston and the East Anglian Film Archive for their help in uncovering the story behind Sally Sally's Fourth. For links to the films and references mentioned in today's episode, please head over to the show notes. I also encourage you to follow Virtuosa Society's Instagram and Facebook at Virtuosa Society for even more bonus materials. And please follow the work of the EAFA as they continue to reveal important historical evidence of women in film. My sincere hope is that this episode further highlights the substantial work of the EAFA and piques your interest as a listener to help track down more information about the women behind Sally Sally's Fourth, whose collaboration was a spark to light the match that is igniting a movement across filmmaking to diversify and include more women in film. This episode is a Virtuosa Society production, written and produced by me, Katie Harmon, with audio engineering by Will Kauser. Title music is by Anna Lonstrom. <laughs>